0: Listen to The Tommy Schnurmecker Show live weekdays 9 to noon on CJAD 800 and CJAD.com. Coming up on your Gang of Four, should there be less parking at future light rail stations or sexual consent classes at university? Are they patronizing? And should the Senate ban Tony the Tiger and Scooby-Doo? But we begin with this. Let me whisk you back to Paris. This is what Prime Minister Trudeau had to say at the climate change conference.
1: Canada knows uh, that uh, there are multiple solutions and multiple pathways, uh, that it's not just uh, a problem that we have to take different avenues to get to where we want to go. It's actually an advantage because we know uh, that countries around the world and populations around the world are facing tremendously varied challenges. And for Canada to be uh, a place uh, that respects, reflects, and helps uh, with a broad variety of approaches uh, is something that is going to be to our advantage uh, as we engage uh, in serious action on uh, this extraordinarily pressing issue of our time.
0: Yes, indeed. Pretty specific there. Uh, That was then. This is now. The Trudeau government has quietly approved the $36 billion Pacific Northwest LNG project, which will ship 19 tons a year of frozen, liquefied natural gas to markets in Asia. It would create thousands of jobs and add $2.4 billion a year to our GDP. This exported fuel would even offer a greener alternative to coal-fired plants in Asia. The B.C. government is on board, and so are 17 out of the 20 First Nations on the pipeline's route. But not everyone is gung-ho. NDP leader Thomas Mulcair was delighted to surface and declare his party's unequivocal opposition to the gas pipeline that would be built in part through the Great Bear Rainforest. Karen Mann of the environmental group Stand Earth is mighty miffed, She was quoted in The Guardian saying, How can Prime Minister Trudeau claim he to be a climate leader on the international stage while approving a new project that will become the single largest source of climate pollution in the country? Karen Mann, need not be worried. I don't believe it will ever be built. There's weakened demand. There's oversupply in the global natural gas market. Oh, yes, one other thing. The approval is contingent on no less than 190 conditions, which are fairly onerous, with the ones faced by international competitors. Petronas, the Malaysian state-owned consortium behind the project, has already invested billions, but... They may decide not to go ahead, given all of the hurdles and the low potential for profit. As I've suggested, when it comes to the subject of climate change, the Liberal government adds to global warming with a lot of hot air. What do you think? Did Prime Minister Trudeau sell out environmentalists? You can call five one four seven nine zero zero eight hundred text five one four eight hundred. Get us on Facebook, Twitter. At CJAD 800. On your gang of four this morning, CJAD news anchor Trudy Mason, founder and editor for Ricochet.media, Ethan Cox, and CJAD legal expert Chris Damakos. This morning, we'll Start with pipeline fan, Ethan Cox. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um,
1: it is interesting. Um, The Trudeau government up to this point has made a practice of sitting on the fence. And throughout the campaign and throughout the first months of their government, they've tried very hard to be all things to all people and try and make positive and encouraging noises to opponents and proponents of pipelines alike. And this is the first time on a major resource project that they've actually gotten off of the fence um, there was an interesting piece by John Ivis in the National Post arguing that this is the best thing that ever happened to the NDP, and I think he's right. I think there's a lot of progressives who voted for the Liberals expecting them to be very strong in the environment who are now feeling deceived. There's, there's a huge base, especially in BC and Quebec, of people that are very opposed to pipelines. And so I think all of this, if only the NDP had a leader, would be very good for them. Um, on the broader issue, I, I think what we're seeing here in this whole debate is a conflict between two views of progress on carbon one of which is linear and cyclical if you look at what people are hypothesizing about Trudeau's strategy here it's that well he approved this cuz it's never going to get built and he needs to make sure that Kinder Morgan gets through so that people don't kick the the NDP out in Alberta it's all predicated on this idea that if if governments that are trying to take some action on climate are kicked out they're going to be replaced by governments like the Harper one that will take no action i, I don't think that's the case i think we're moving forward on recognition of what a serious issue could Carbon is, and I think that we're going to continue to take more and more stringent measures to to remove it. So I think I think you're right. This pipeline won't be built. I think it's very unlikely that any pipelines will be built. Trudy,
2: well, yeah. I mean, I I assume the environmentalists are calling him a a complete and utter sellout. But let's be clear: they wanted no pipeline built. They want nothing built. Nothing. But nothing would have satisfied them. That's what they were going for. They were not looking for, uh, exa- uh, just as an example, a cleaner way to process the the, uh, the natural gas uh, for shipment, They to reduce uh, greenhouse emissions. They weren't looking for protection of the environment along the pipeline route. They did not want it, period. So, of course, they're going to see Trudeau as a sellout. I think that the, the 190 conditions show that at least more than lip service was paid to the environment, particularly in the construction phases through those uh, very delicate environmental areas in BC. But the fact of the matter is, this is not like some of the other pipelines where there is widespread political and community opposition, like, like the one that, you know, the pipeline reversal we're talking about that would come uh, to and through Montreal. B.C. government wanted this pipeline. 17 of the 20 First Nations communities signed off on the pipeline. There was community consensus around the pipeline, and the environmentalists on this particular project were the outliers. So no, I don't think the Trudeau government sold out environmentalists. I think they took their concerns and views into account and went with what the majority of people wanted. Chris?
3: Yeah, they definitely took them into the Canada. I read one piece where they said we, we had meaningful discussions and consultations, but they're still going ahead with the pipeline. Here's how I look at it. I mean, environmentalists, I agree with Trudy. Uh, they're looking for an absolute result here, something that would not have any effect on the environment, and, and anything less than that would be a sellout. So there's no question. But I think the more important aspect here is, did they sell out the voters, the Canadian voters? The fact that, that, that the Liberal government ran a platform, and, and they, they made the Conservatives look like the, the, the party that didn't care about climate right. change, and the party that didn't recognize climate change, and we know, understand how important and how imperative it is to put the climate as a pressing issue, as a number one issue here. So when you run that kind of platform, and and you you know, then you go ahead and with with a pipeline like this, I'm not sure what the environmental impact is, but I can guarantee you one thing: if someone would have told Justin Trudeau, "Hey, maybe you should mention in your platform during the election that you plan to to have a pipeline," although there will be 190 conditions, talk about the pipeline. He would have said, "Are you crazy? Right. I'm not going to mention pipeline." Exactly. Just, And that's what I think voters might have been sold out with.
1: Yeah, I I just, uh, one point is that what the environmentalists want, which is so totally crazy, is also what the science demands, so that's worth mentioning. But on the specific point of the election, I agree with you, Chris, Uh, Trudeau explicitly, he tweeted uh, in 2015 that the Great Bear rainforest is no place for a pipeline. And he hashtagged that with Northern Gateway, but how can somebody who campaigned on the promise that this rainforest is no place for a pipeline, and he would reverse the Harper government's desire to put one through there, turn around and say, actually, on further consideration, the rainforest is a great spot for a pipeline he's clearly broken a commitment broken a trust with the voters and i think that we're going to see his astronomical poll numbers start to fall i think we're going to see the ndp gain some support because there's definitely a large number of canadians that will feel betrayed about this
0: with me on your gang of four, CJ80 news anchor, Tootie Mason, founder and editor for Ricochet.media, Ethan Cox, and CJ80 legal expert, Chris DeMakos. uh We had uh, the environmental groups, uh, speaking of the environment, calling for there to be less parking at the upcoming stations for the light rail network. They say that allowing people to drive to the stations and park their cars, that only encourages them to drive more. And the city should provide better public transit to and from these stations. What do you think? Uh, Do we need less parking at the new train stations? I think if you don't provide enough parking, people will avoid the train station and take the car all the way into town. Trudy, I,
2: I think this is the dumbest thing I have ever heard, and a complete misunderstanding of the psyche of right. the of the long distance commuter. When you're talking about this this particular REM project, you're talking about bringing people in from the south shore, from Laval, and the the far western tip of the island, uh, including people who live off island and and would come to the train station specifically to to take the train in town. These are people who will not otherwise take public transit. You have to make it 100% accessible, 100% convenient. Otherwise, they will stay in their car. Because I think the majority of them have the wherewithal. They have the cash to commute, they're probably commuting right now in their vehicles. They don't need the train. They will take the train if it's convenient right. and gives them a sense that they're doing something good for the environment and saving
0: some time too. And
2: it and if you make it difficult for them to park, first of all, it will create a parking nightmare in the neighborhoods around these stations. We already see that, uh, for example, at the around the Roxborough train station, some of the other ones out on the West Island, when those park those stupidly small parking lots fill up, so there there is no way around it when you're doing a long commute you you you're going to want to get off the train and get into your car you're not going to want to get off the train and get on a bus after that, so if you want to understand the suburban affluent commuter, you have to take that into right. account. Right, and some
0: people, the ones who are three, four blocks away from the train station, they won't take their car; they'll walk. They'll be thrilled about it. But if it's a twenty, if it's a forty-five minute walk, people won't do it.
3: There's no question that a commuter who's taking a car to a train is driving less than a commuter who takes their car downtown. That's that's been established. Now the question is, do we make these these parking lots smaller, which would force the commuter not to take a train, uh, not take a car to the uh, parking lot. And the answer is no. What what I would be okay with is say, hey, we're going to make this parking lot big enough for all the cars to to get here, so that they can take the train to work. And if we start working on our public transit to get them to that parking lot, and we start seeing the parking lot be empty, then we can right. start reducing the size, and we can sell off some of that property. But to, you, we're working in reverse here. We're saying let's make them smaller, and put the problem on the user, and the user is going to h- hopefully decide to take the train nonetheless that's that's backwards so we have right, to and do. it may not
0: be a bus going from anywhere near their house to the train exactly so, no.
3: so 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 and, and the last thing is it's not only about the environment we, we take the train also to ease traffic and congestion which is better for business so instead of having the delivery trucks in, in traffic for an hour and a half or two hours they only take a half an hour so i, I think it's an absolutely ridiculous idea to do so in this process
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that this is putting the cart before the horse, but I also feel strongly that if you're going to build a light rail network, that it's a half measure unless you provide people with door-to-door transportation solutions because there's a couple of issues here, one of which is convenience. You want to make it as convenient to people to take public transit as possible and that's what you two are arguing in terms of saying people need to have parking. And the other issue is there are also populations which don't have cars, which don't have that, that access. And I think if we want to address congestion, and you're absolutely right, Chris, there's Not just an environmental issue; it's a business issue. It's a it's a quality of life issue. If we want to address uh, that, then we really need to invest in public transit. We need to make it as easy as possible for people to take public transit. So, in the in general terms, I agree that if we're going to build a light rail network, then absolutely we should invest in public transit around the stations to make it as easy and as convenient and as affordable as possible for people to use that public that public infrastructure. But trying to force them to do that before the transit is there is really putting the cart before the horse.
0: A 16-year-old Villa Maria High School student questioning the strategy of Montreal police in the wake of an awareness campaign about sexual assault, two police officers, female police officers, talked to the students outside the metro station. And they suggested that the practice of rolling the skirts up to make them shorter than they are already was provocative and it drew unwanted attention. And the student was quite surprised. She says this was... Victim blaming and she was surprised to see this coming from the cops. Trudy
2: Well, do you want the politically correct answer or do you want what I tell my daughter?
0: I want what you tell your daughter. Because
2: because you know what? They're completely different. I agree. We shouldn't be victim blaming. I agree. It's a guy's problem if he is so enticed by the sight of three inches of skin above a, a, a young girl's knee that he has to stare at her, make comments, or otherwise harass her in the metro system. This is something we have to work with our boys about. But... Um, When I've talked to both my kids about safety in public, when when they got a little bit deeper into their teen years and they started taking buses, going downtown uh, with their friends and so on, I gave them the standard safety lecture, you know. Always know where your wallet is. Don't keep it on an, on an outside pocket. Uh, don't flash your money around when you're paying your bus fare. Don't make it look like you have a lot of money. Don't talk loudly that you're, you know, carrying $75 because you're going to buy a pair of jeans. You know, uh, protect yourself. Don't keep your earbuds in. Be aware of what's around you. And w- one of those things is not looking like a target. And I think it's important for bo- both boys and girls in the way that, that they dress, not to look like targets. Not, not, and I've also spoken in the, about not being drunk in public because it can make you more likely to become a victim. All of these things are on the continuum of ensuring your personal safety, and I don't think that necessarily that falls into victim blaming. It's how to stay safe in a city where you cannot possibly control 100 percent of the time the behavior of people around you we don't live in an ideal world and i think it's important to tell kids that
0: so it's okay you're okay with the cop the female cops telling her this that I'd, i think I'd be,
2: I'd be okay if it, if there was more to it than that and she was also speaking to guys about you know keeping their eyes in their heads and leaving women alone on uh, in the metro system and how it's wrong to... Well, I don't ogle. think there's
0: any indication she was only to, that the cops are only talking to the girls. I, I don't know. Well, I would hope yeah. not,
2: that they were, weren't just talking to the girls.
0: Some listener uh, reaction on the subject. Jay Farrar and Matt Guite. Thanks,
4: Tommy. On the topic of uh, reducing the amount of parking at the light tra- rail train station, um, John texted in, said, I take the train every day and there's no way in hell I'm going to hop in a bus at 6 in the morning to go to the train. Just give me more parking. Uh, Andy says this is a great idea if you want to lose the public support. Taking the car to the train station is much better than driving all the way to work. Don't shoot yourself in the foot by making life harder for drivers than it already is. Uh, let's see here. Kelly says, "If we want people to stop driving, we really do need to have way more money invested in our public transit. We need to make it easy, simple, and comfortable to take the bus to the train station. But I don't think the government is pre- prepared to invest that money. I think they'd rather just slap a few more parking spots onto the train station and pat themselves on the back."
5: Over on Facebook, Tommy, John says, That's ridiculous. Why wouldn't you encourage people to park and ride? Every little bit helps. I don't mind taking a half-hour train ride into downtown because it'll be faster than driving in traffic. However, getting off the train and spending just as much time on a bus to go a couple of kilometers because the bus winds its way through my neighborhood when I can be home in 10 minutes is not realistic. David says, Come on, folks, please read the article. It says, The city must instead improve the public transit to and from the stations, I agree with that. They, if they build stations, they must improve the bus service to them.
0: With me on your gang of four CJ80 News anchor Trudy Mason, founder and editor for Ricochet.media, Ethan Cox, and CJD legal expert Chris Demacos. That story about that 16-year-old girl. Uh, she's wondering what the Montreal cops were doing. There's an awareness campaign about sexual assault. You had two female officers talking to students outside a metro station, outside the Villa Maria metro station, and the police, one of the police women, told her that the practice of rolling the skirts up to make them shorter was provocative. It drew unwanted attention attention. She felt, the student felt, this was victim-blaming. Chris? you agree with her?
3: Uh, absolutely not. And and the reason I'm saying that is because th- those are two different conversations. And, and, you know, I'm all for debate on whether or not rolling up your skirt will, you know, render you at a higher propensity to receive unwanted attention. Maybe that is the case. I'm not sure. Maybe the police officer, in her experience, on the streets, on the beat, w- has discovered and determined that that's what happens when you have a rolled up skirt. But to say that that conversation about whether or not you'll draw unwanted attention is basically saying, well, if you get assaulted or harassed, it's because you wore a skirt. Th- that's not what they're saying. And I think that there, there's no question that anybody who, does, who harasses you or who sexually assaults you is a criminal. It's wrong. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. And it has nothing to do with what your actions were. You can't invite that kind of stuff. What I think the police officers are saying is, hey, we have to be realistic here. There are certain types of people walking around on the streets, just like we tell people not to walk down dark alleys, just like we tell people maybe to hide a, an expensive watch when they're going to certain areas. It, it's a reality. And if you want to adjust in a, in a course that reality, Reality, then then do so. But there's no way do I think this is victim blaming.
1: Well, let's be clear about one thing. Um, what you wear does not invite harassment or make you responsible for your assault. Nevertheless, parents have every right, as Trudy points out, to talk to their parents about what they wear for a, or talk to their kids, I mean, about what they wear for a wide variety of reasons, and that's fine. Parents can do that. The issue here is what police are spending their time on. And we were talking before the break about whether they were talking to boys and girls equally. Villa is, until this year, an all-girls school, and they were at Villa Maria Metro, which primarily serves that school and not a whole lot of other schools so I don't think that they were... I think it's hard to believe that they were there trying to speak to boys. I think they were probably there primarily trying to speak to girls. And that's where I have a problem with this is where the police are spending their time. I'd be much happier to see an awareness campaign targeted at boys saying, please don't harass and assault women on the metro and on the bus. Even if they are wearing a short skirt, then I would like the police but to is reverse it okay the for equation. It, but
0: is it okay for them to say uh, that if you are wearing a shorter skirt, it, it might bring unwarranted attention by people, by boys who don't listen? No, I don't think... I think it's helpful I think that's so they I think shouldn't tell them said, that at all I, I think
1: as Trudy said that's the kind of conversation that a parent can have with their kid I think in terms of the police what the police should be doing is targeting the people who are doing the illegal thing not the victim of the illegal thing about whether their skirt was two inches too short so again what I would like to see is the police doing an awareness campaign targeted at boys targeted at men making them aware because I think so many men are unaware of how it makes women feel when they get stared at when they have make comments when they touch them on public transit so I I think there's a much more valuable role for the police in making men aware of how their actions impact women than there is on telling women to stop rolling
3: up their skirts. There's no question here that there's nothing wrong with the police, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with police officers trying to lower the propensity of something wrong happening and talking to people. That's like saying you shouldn't be telling children not to eat fruit without having your parents inspect your candy at Halloween. We should be targeting the people who put razors and all these things in the, the candy. The question here is not whether or not they're doing something wrong or the girls are doing something wrong. And just by talking to them, that's not an implicit accusation that they're doing something wrong when you talk to them you're saying hey here's the reality of what's going on outside and we're letting you know that if, that by doing this it might bring on stuff not that there's anything wrong with doing it not that you are going to be share any responsibility or liability if it happens to you if you do this but just as a, a as a precautionary approach maybe that will lower the propensity of something happening to you that's all that they're saying
1: Well, the reason we're talking about this is because one of these girls from Villa Maria wrote about it, complaining about this experience with the police, and she felt very much that this intervention by the police was putting the responsibility on her and telling her that it was her responsibility to avoid harassment or assault by what she was wearing, and that's not what the police should be spending on. That's not what the cops
2: were saying. The cops were talking about risk the same way that I talked to my daughter and my son about watching where their wallet is. You know, I wouldn't shame them. If their wallet got lifted on the metro. But I might say, did you have it in an inside pocket? Or was it stuffed in your backpack where anyone could get at it? I would have that conversation. So why can't I have the conversation about for and and it's not just sexual assault and harassment? You know, can we say, can I say to my daughter, you know what? Wearing a short skirt makes the job really easy for those upskirt pervs who aim a camera up your skirt to take pictures. It it's it's a simple, uh, you know, measures to protect yourself because while all this lecturing of boys is going on, you have to acknowledge not everyone will be receptive. Not all guys will listen. There will always be pervs in the metro groping girls, leering at them, making sexual comments and taking upskirt videos. And there are ways that women can reduce their risk.
1: And as I said, Trudy, as a parent, you are absolutely entitled to have that conversation. But the cops aren't allowed to
2: talk about reducing? Why why do they go into the suburbs and teach teach, uh, people how to secure their homes against break-ins? That's called reducing risk. Why can't you say to a woman a short skirt makes it easier for upskirt photographers? That's reducing risk
1: as I said, Trudy, there is a huge difference between parents and police and absolutely, when the police come up to young and impressionable kids and tell them that the cause and that is what is implied by this intervention, that the cause of their harassment in public is what they wear and how they wear it, that That is no no, 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 no. That would be wrong. Well, that is how the the only person that was there when this happened describes it. So we're making a lot of assumptions about the police. No,
0: no, she doesn't say that. Even she doesn't say that. They didn't say by the way if anything happens to you that's why because you're wearing that short skirt that was that's, how she interpreted th- th- that their intervention be. that is what that she wrote be. an entire that's op-ed true. about i understand that's how she interpreted it but that's not what the female cop told her you continue wearing a skirt like that you know you're gonna get it, it'll be your fault that's not well, what we don't she know the exact, words what, what the exact they wanted words to do what they wanted to do what the cops wanted to do was to reduce
3: risk what sheer interpretation was that the police officer was telling her there's a causal effect that if you wear this type of skirt and you you were inviting this to happen to you and it, you were sharing some of that liability that's not what they're saying and she, she used the word victim blaming which means you shoulder some of this blame if something happens to you because of the skirt you wore and that's not what they're saying I don't think they're telling you hey you're going to be blamed for this if, if you get assaulted or harassed it's because you decided to wear your skirt in that way and that's not what the police officer was saying Police officers saying, listen, we have a reality here. Let's try to limit our risks and propensity to something happening to you. And we don't want to invite this kind of stuff. That's M- all.
1: My bottom line on this is very simple. Parents are more than welcome to tell their children what to wear. I have a problem with police telling children what to wear. That's pretty simple. That's
3: Who does she go to if something happens? Does she go to her parents or she goes to the police to, to report a crime? Who does that victim go to? Does she go to her parents to talk about a crime or to the police? And the fact that she is going to the police, they have a role in that discussion.
1: No, they don't. They don't have a role to tell anyone what to wear. They don't. That's absurd. It's absurd for the police to be wasting time when we're paying their salary out on the street telling girls not to roll up their skirts when there are a million more useful things they could be doing like, I don't know, a public education campaign telling men not to harass women. I mean, we've got the syllable the emphasis on the wrong syllable here.
0: In this the next story related to this, a majority of students at a university sexual consent course at York University had enough. They were fed up. They walked out. They said the classes were absolutely patronizing. It took it for granted that every woman is a potential victim and every every male is uh, a rapist and has to be taught what, what to do. They said it was condescending and patronizing. What do you think? Uh, university sexual consent courses. Trudy, did they make sense?
2: Yeah, they absolutely make sense, and I think we have to see more of them. I think that this is a good idea because... The times they are changing, and I think that both genders have to get on the same page as to what is and is not acceptable, what is and is not consent, when consent cannot be given, i.e. if you're drunk or high, uh, and what the consequences are. I think I would want both my daughter and my son to go in that class and listen with open ears and an open mind and an open heart, and understand what the new rules are for interaction dating interaction these days, I think that uh it has to be spelled out and you know tommy, I've said it before on this show. I've told my son the absence of yes does not the absence of yes means no, and I would hope that that's the message that's that's being propagated at these things.
3: Well, I can tell you, I I think that I feel very strongly about this, the fact that we should have this discussion, but I disagree with the fact that they should talk about what constitutes consent, because it's just a matter of interpretation. I think a lot more should be done on what the consequences are. If there is a a, a disconnect between what they think consent is, here's what you're liable to experience in the courts and with legal fees and all the penalties that, that the justice system has for you.
1: Well, I think the, the question here is that we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, there obviously was a problem with this sexual consent class. A lot of students walked out. It wasn't given very well, but that doesn't mean we should scrap the idea of sexual consent courses or educating students on sexual consent.
0: With me on your gang of four, CJAD News anchor, Trudy Mason, founder and editor for Ricochet.media, Ethan Cox and CJAD legal expert, Chris DeMakos. That freshman at a university uh, sex consent class, some of them staged a protest, but a quarter of them walked out. And one campus activist was a third-year accounting student. He was outside telling students to boycott the talks if they disagreed with them. He said, consent talks are patronizing. If students really need lessons on how to say yes or no, they shouldn't be at university. There's no correct way to negotiate getting someone into bed with you, he said. In suggesting there is consent, talks encourage women to interpret sexual experiences that have not been preceded by a lengthy formal and sober contractual discussion as rape and he said consent talks propagate the backward message that all women are potential victims and all men are potential rapists it's interesting that he didn't like the idea and feminist groups some feminist groups didn't like the idea they felt these consent classes trivialize rape and uh, it makes it sound like the rape was only a misunderstanding that the that the guy didn't understand consent and he wasn't a rapist he just misunderstood consent so it's interesting that both sides of the divide Aren't, aren't impressed with it. Now we have another story. BlackBerry CEO John Chen, he's disappointed by how Canadians seem to have stopped supporting the company. He says BlackBerry an iconic brand, an important part of the history of tech and innovation in this country, and it would uh, be more likely to succeed if Canadians would get on board and support the company. Uh, should every man, woman, and child have an obligation to support BlackBerry Uh, in any way was the fact that they're not making them. Is that our fault? We didn't buy enough of them, Trudy?
2: Uh, Well, do I have an obligation to buy a piece of extremely pricey, (laughs) underperforming tech? No. The best thing we can do for Canadian businesses is encourage them to compete and buy the products, if it's the best one, at a reasonable price.
3: Uh, I, I'm all for supporting Canadian companies. I will pay even a little more money if it's made in Canada. I, I will do that because I do want support to support the company. But at the same time, they can't rely on that being their sole right. business strategy. They have to come up with a product that at least is comparable to what's on the market. And and BlackBerry, you know, the CEOs of those companies, they made a tremendous amount of money at the time. And they, and they were not proactive enough. Uh, you know w- w- when the time was needed to make the changes to their business plan to adjust. But that being said, if they need more money to compete, then they should d- get some ad- advice from Bombardier and some of these other companies yeah. on how to get some handouts. But it's absolutely not our obligation to finance them when they don't have a comparable product.
1: Yeah, th- like you, Chris, I. Uh... I'm inclined to buy from from local companies, from Canadian companies. Given two comparable products, I'll absolutely always choose the Canadian one. But BlackBerry phones simply were not comparable to what is on the market, and that's the reason why they're doing badly. Not out of a, a failure of national pride by Canadians. Uh, some years back, I was I was dating a member of Parliament, and they're all forced to uh, have Blackberries as a as a sort of economic nationalism thing. The House of Commons only buys and provides Blackberries, and they're supposed to be better security and what have you. But almost everyone had an iPhone as a separate personal phone yeah. because there are things you can do on an iPhone that you can't do on a Blackberry and I remember um, visiting, visiting her family and talking to her brother out a Blackberry and he's like oh it's just as good as an iPhone and I literally took out my iPhone and showed him a couple things and in like four minutes he was like oh my god I need to get an iPhone this isn't the same <laughs> at all um, and, and, and that's, that's the problem for Blackberry so you know the phone just wasn't competitive, so it makes a certain amount of sense to me that they're saying we're going to stop building the phones, we're going to focus on software, so I wish them luck in the software, but they they have to be able to produce something which which is at least as good as what else is on the market.
0: A new bill proposed by the Senate would make it illegal to use cartoon characters, video games, celebrities, gifts, giveaways on packaging and advertising of Anything like junk food, sugary drinks, anything unhealthy for kids under the age of 13. What does this mean? This would mean no more Happy Meals, no more Tony the Tiger, no more Scooby-Doo on junk food. Do we ban Tony the Tiger and Scooby-Doo, Trudy?
2: Well, you know, Quebec has had rules uh, surrounding this for a while that basically outlaw direct advertising to kids in the form of, of commercials that appear on children's programs appealing directly to kids I get that cartoon characters on products for the under thirteen set. Let's face it: when you're under thirteen, the 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 key arbitrators of what you are eating, they're your parents or your guardians. And it, 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 banning advertising with with uh, you know Scooby Doo and other cartoon characters will have zero effect on what parents are offering their kids. I don't believe in this whole, oh, well, the kids clamor for it, so I have to give it to them. If kids are becoming more obese in Canada, it's because parents are becoming more... per permissive and possibly becoming more obese themselves this this cartoon character ban won't change that
3: yeah I agree with Trudy I mean I've been known when I'm watching the kids I I often take them to McDonald's because I'm not the cook in the house and my wife shouldn't be hearing this but that being said when, when we get there and I think Trudy's right who, who's actually making the decisions on what they're eating uh, is it the, the children under 13 years old is, is it my daughter who if she gets a happy meal that's not a happy meal with no toy she's gonna say no toy send this back and get me broccoli <laughs> that's not gonna that's not gonna happen my daughter will not do that. So the, the question is, are, it's the parents making those decisions, and, and I, I don't think that, that banning these cartoons will have any effect on, on, on the eating habits.
1: Well, I'm, you know, not a parent, uh, so I suppose I have less place to say here, but it strikes me that we should be making it easier, uh, not harder, for parents to to make good decisions because you're absolutely correct that it is ultimately up to parents what kids under 13 years eat, but I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that kids are demanding a Happy Meal, that they really want that toy, and so parents are in a position where maybe they could buy their kids something healthy and then go buy them a toy and the kid would be happy, but because they're associating the toy, like the bottom line for me is I don't think we should be connecting bad unhealthy food with superheroes and toys in kids minds
2: except can i point out that a happy meal these days has the option of no fries if you get apple. fries yeah. it's a right. tiny little package with about five of them in it and the option is apple slices right. it comes with yogurt and milk as the option mm. you know again and, and even that's a happy meal it, and it's a happy <laughs> and meal it's and happy. it's the parent that decides
0: despite the i'm sure you can still put superheroes on carrot sticks So I'm listening to reaction over to Jay Farrar and Matt Gitae.
4: Tommy, on the topic of this possible ban of cartoon characters from junk food, uh, Mark says, Bravo, I'm sick of seeing my kids being lured into a sick and unhealthy lifestyle by their favorite cartoon characters every day, all day. This needs to stop. Uh, Sarah texted in saying, If you want your kids to eat healthy, taking Scooby-Doo off the packaging isn't going to help. It's on you to teach your kids what healthy eating is, not Tony the Tiger.
5: Over on Facebook, Tommy, Jess says the Senate has too much money and too much time to think of, of nonsensical laws just to justify their own existence. Enough is enough. And Stephen says this is ridiculous. What happened to, the co- to common sense, the word no, and the people who are supposed to make the decision, the parents?
0: News Talk Radio, CJAD, 800, CJAD.com.